Hello and welcome to For All Time, episode six. My name is Don Johnson, and this is going to be an interesting episode. We are going to cover a lot of things in micro and macro. And um, I guess I'm going to show you where my eyes go and then uh, what comes out of my mouth through the uh, wonderful audio medium of podcasting. So... I'm going to start here by showing you some of the things that I'm going to be looking at as I'm getting to the things that I'm going to read. Um, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal last Thursday, January 6th. More schools shut, go online as virus fuels staff shortage. Um, I talk about basically how they had to close schools because teachers unions were um, making their voices heard. Uh, banks put return to office on hold. So banks are uh, making their people stay at home. Uh, 5G, truce on 5G won't avert all travel woes. This is like a battle between the telecommunications industry and the airline industry over radio bandwidth, essentially. Um, and the broadcast space for which the cell phone, the 5G cell phone band is allowed to occupy versus where it used to, a portion of what it used to occupy, which would be um, airline communications pathways, uh, the, the band of radio that is used for those purposes. Um, it's being slightly cut off, not in a major way, but it was enough of a major way that airlines were um, trying to install injunctions i believe to emergency like halt the changes until everything could be settled i will also continue down here u.s households fear judgment ew what's that smell paranoia grows in general that our homes reek of dirty clothes stinky foods mildew and pets the thing i'm really more interested in than how terrible our homes smell that we live with them all the time is this article here by James Marson and Stephen Kalin in that issue of the Wall Street Journal. Military's new challenge, fighting cheap hobby drones. Weapons against the small armed devices include lasers and microwaves. And I picked this story specifically because I used to spend a lot of my time professionally and otherwise flying uh, camera drones. And I've flown them all over the world in different countries and for different purposes. And they are in many different kinds, in fact. Um, and there's one thing universally that I'll say about all of them. Any consumer drone is very easy to fly. Of course, that is by design. They are made for the consumer. But I've also flown some more advanced drones. And, and the only thing you're getting more in the advanced package is flight time, maybe payload size, which in a normal case of a camera drone is the camera, but also batteries. Um, and let's say you got your standard, I don't know, your Mavic. Your Mavic drone, too small probably to attach anything to it of any weight, really. Um, but you take your Phantom, you know, it's very sturdy. Uh, was made they started making the phantom four five or six years ago so i mean at this point they must be 
the aftermarket, the the uh, second secondary market must be absolutely packed with them, especially like after every holiday season when like you know, dad, uncle, your your mom gets a new drone, and then uh, you know puts the old one up for sale or brings it to a pawn shop or whatever, Goodwill, etc. Um, those drones end up on the secondary market. And if you really wanted to blow something up, that would be where you go um, to buy something with less of a record. And imagine you wanted to do some destruction with those drones. That's what this article is about. The U.S. is racing to combat an ostensibly modest foe, hobbyist drones that can cost a few hundred dollars and can be rigged with explosives. Emerging solutions resemble the stuff of science fiction, from laser zappers to microwave blasters. Small, cheap drones are the most concerning new tactical threat to face the U.S. military since the rise of improvised explosive devices in Iraq some 15 years ago, according to the head of the U.S. Central Command, Marine General Kenneth McKenzie. The rapid development of inexpensive unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, has enabled irregular forces, terrorist groups, and national armies to attack high-value targets at low cost. I am very concerned about it, General McKenzie told the House Armed Services Committee in April. We still have a ways to go to get on the right side of the curve with this because right now you can go out and buy one at Walmart or some other location and you can weaponize it very readily. Insurgent groups such as Islamic State and Yemen's Houthi rebels have rigged commercial off-the-shelf drones with explosives to attack expensive armored vehicles and military installations as well as oil refineries, ports, and civilian airports. The UAVs are often bought or assembled from parts bought online. Iranian-backed Shiite militia groups in Iraq stepped up drone attacks in 2021. They included strikes on the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and the Iraqi Prime Minister's residence in what officials called an assassination attempt against him. Drones slammed into a commercial ship in the Arabian Sea in July, killing two crew, as well as the main Saudi royal complex in Riyadh. Armed drones were brought down at the Baghdad airport on Monday and near the airbase in Iraq, hosting U.S. troops on Tuesday, and another was shot down early Thursday, local time, near another Iraqi base. The bargain basement weapon is a particular challenge for U.S., which is focused on the threat of potential war with the high-end militaries, China and Russia, and is plowing billions into advanced systems from sophisticated missiles to giant aircraft carriers. The high quantities of the drones mean that traditional defenses against aerial attacks, such as million-dollar missiles, don't make sense. Drone attacks on Saudi Arabia by Iran and groups it supports have highlighted the cost imbalance. Riyadh also often responds by firing Patriot surface-to-air missiles, which cost around $3 million each, and scrambling fighter jets to shoot drones down. Saudi Arabia is running low on missile interceptors, and the Wall, Street, the Wall Street Journal reported. The U.S. is racing to develop defenses that will meet the technology at a more equivalent cost, and is focusing on lasers and microwaves because they are powered by electricity, which gives more bang for their buck, and can quickly target large numbers of small drones. The U.S. has fielded a variety of systems across the armed services from handheld signal jammers that look like a weapon from Ghostbusters or Star Wars, to laser shooters mounted on trucks. The military has been unable to deploy the systems in large numbers, and no single one has integrated the ability to track and target several types of drones with the most suitable weapon. Recognizing the urgency and need to consolidate 
efforts, the Army in 2020 took charge of a new office to direct the search for solutions. Small drones fly low, slowly, and can sharply change course, confusing radar that is scanning for a large, fast, high-flying aircraft or missiles. If drones are laden with explosives, simply forcing them out of the sky can endanger people and facilities on the ground, and when deployed in large groups, drones could overwhelm even sophisticated defenses. I'm going to read that paragraph one more time. Small drones fly low, slowly, and can cause and can shapely change course, confusing radar that is scanning for large, fast, high-flying aircraft or missiles. If drones are laden with explosives, simply forcing them out of the sky can endanger people and facilities on the ground. And when deployed in large groups, drones could overwhelm even sophisticated defenses. Um... The what they're talking about, I mean, you 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 may you may think that what they're talking about is like a series of those little camera drones that I don't know someone you know has small little arms fold out. It's gonna fly over whatever. But realistically, the issue with these the the issue with cloud drones like drone clouds essentially is that um, we're talking about a future technology. So. Um, yes, you could have eight or 10 or a hundred or a thousand, I don't know, regular consumer drones strapped with some kind of ordinance and have it fly towards something as a, as a weapon, right? And, and you would never be able to catch all of them if that was the strategy in mass. You're just trying to get them all through to cause, I don't know, whatever target effect that you're trying to achieve. That, that could be effective. I mean, it would be completely absurd to pull off you'd have to have a single person piloting each one, which is, I mean, that's just infeasible. But realistically, what you're looking at here is uh, military applications of uh, cloud droning. Um, back about if 10, right after the beginning of the uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, there was a lot of talk in the Air Force about um, using, once uh, the drones that we were using in those conflicts were public that we started talking about new technologies for drones and the next technology for drones was uh, the next next technology for drones was uh cloud drones a drone like uh, imagine if you could replace the functionality of a missile or an aircraft a fighter aircraft even or you'll get the concept of what i'm talking about in a second so a large cloud of very small drones. This has even been featured in some films. Um, actually, the first... I'm trying to think of, like, the first one might have been a movie, a fictional movie called Stealth, I want to say. And if not, then there's definitely been cases since. But imagine a, a large cloud of drones coming towards a single object. You could never defend them all. They get through. I mean, alien movies have used this over and over again. The visuals have been used. You, sh you have seen uh, the idea here. And um, truly, that's all it would take, is the military having an overwhelming number of drones that could fly to a single target. The first military that adapts that and is able to get a cloud of drones to effectively you know, be controlled by a team of people to, with a coordinated attack, they will have the ultimate weapon. Planes, boats 
anything else like that, if you could launch it from the other side of the world, if you could launch it from space, that kind of weapon, I mean, a precision-killing weapon like that could never be stopped in a way that... If you could develop a weapon like that, which they're trying to do, <laughs> you'd be unstoppable. No technology could keep up with a constantly self-destructing force. If everything that was coming to get you was trying to explode in your face, you could never get away from it. But anyway, that's what the military is up to. So, hope they're having a great time. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, yes, let's not forget about Kazakhstan. It's by Georgi Konchev, Wall Street Journal. This was uh, Saturdays, the Saturday, Sunday edition. Kazakhstan's enormous reserves of oil, coal, and precious metals offered the promise of a prosperous future for the nation following the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yet Kazakhstan's relative prosperity hasn't protected the country leadership from popular anger over corruption, low salaries, and the outsized wealth of a small group of oligarchs. That helped turn resentment over a rise in fuel prices into a broader protest against the country's authoritarian leaders and the state of the economy. The crisis deepened Friday as Kazakh President Kasim Jomart Tokayev gave order to gave the order to police and the army to shoot protesters without warning. Clashes between demonstrators and security forces have already led to dozens of deaths and prompted Russia to send paratroopers to help Mr. Tokayev. The surprising scale of the unrest and disorder that we've seen suggests that this is something more than just unhappiness about rising fuel prices, said Nigel Gould Davies, a former British ambassador to Belarus. Relatively speaking, Kazakhstan has been a major overperformer of the post-Soviet period in Central Asia and had a much better economic record than the states around. Uh, around it, Mr. Gold Davies said. And yet that hasn't averted this extraordinary eruption, he said. The wider comparative perspective of success has clearly not insulated the regime from discontent. After Kazakhstan became an independent state in 1990, many businessmen close to the government amassed huge wealth through privatization and ownership of natural resources. Some of the country's tycoons have, embroil have been embroiled in international banking scandals, and many of the richest are now living abroad in places such as London. Only 162 people account for 55% of total wealth in the country, according to a report by accounting firm KPMG. The country, the largest of the former Soviet states in Central Asia, has five billionaires in Forbes World's Billionaires list, stemming from the mining and banking sectors. The system of decision-making continues to reflect the interests of a relatively small group of players, whether counted in terms of individuals or their businesses, vehicles, or holdings. Their business vehicles or holdings, researchers 
Simon, Commander, he's a researcher. Okay. It goes on. Um, horrible. And, and largely ignored. I, I don't see anyone talking about that at all, and it's happening right now. So now you have, uh, let's see, what was that? The second country in the last... The second country since I've started this show that is facing enormous pressure, and uh, if you read any more about it, you'll see that there's basically almost no way to push back at all, uh, effectively. This is from uh, the USA Today, also Thursday. This is the money section. I'm going to read this here. KFC launches plant-based chicken. Kentucky Fried Chicken and Beyond Meat announced that they will release Beyond Fried Chicken nationwide Monday, starting January 10th. KFC restaurants across the nation will sell the temporary addition to the menu, which will be available while supplies last. The meat alternative is available in 6 to 12 pieces a la carte or as a combo and with a dipping sauce. Prices will vary, but will start at $6.99. A little bit of a follow-up on a previous thread. Walmart to expand in-home delivery service. Walmart is expanding its in-home delivery service to uh, from 6 million to 30 million U.S. households by the end of the year. Tom Ward, Walmart U.S. Senior Vice President, said the program will roll out in Dallas, Houston, Nashville, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Indianapolis. The service costs $20 per month or $148 per year with no additional fees. Customers need to have an existing smart lock garage keypad or to purchase a new smart lock from in-home for $49.95. Macy's announces new round of store closures. Days into the new year, Macy's has confirmed a new round of store closures to USA Today. Macy's Inc., which also runs Bloomingdale's and Bloom Blue Mercury, identified six Macy's and one Bloomingdale's outlet store that will shutter in this round. The closures are part of Macy's three-year plan to close one-fifth of its stores, or roughly 125 locations. In early 2020, Macy's announced the first closures as part of the store optimization plan. Last January, another round of closings was announced. The Macy's stores in the newest round are expected to close in the company's first financial quarter of 2022. The Bloomingdale's closure is expected by January 29th. TikTok will stream on TV at 19,000 businesses. Eateries, bars, and gyms, part of Atmosphere Deal, capital A, so the brand. This is by Mike Snyder in the USA Today, same, uh, same issue. Get ready for TikTok on TV, everywhere. Soon you will see the popular social network's addictive short-form videos on TVs and displays in restaurants, bars, gyms, medical offices, and other businesses. The TikTok channel is being added to Atmosphere's streaming TV package for businesses. About 19,000 businesses globally, including Taco Bell, Burger King, Meineke Car Care, Weston, and Texas Roadhouse, streaming Atmosphere's more than 60 channels, including Happy TV and Pause TV. Atmosphere's editors will curate TikTok's videos for the channel, sometimes adding random videos and other times creating themed video compilations. Atmosphere gets clearance from video creators and adds licensed sound. 
that means you won't see dance videos with the latest music hits. The good news is that there's millions and millions of videos on TikTok, and 20 to 30% of those videos are still really good, and you do not need audio to enjoy those, said Leo Rezig, CEO and co-founder at Atmosphere. Oh, well, he says 20 to 30% of uh, TikTok videos are not only really good, you don't need sound to enjoy them. I'm sure a study showed that somewhere. TikTok has grown to more than 1 billion users, but its audience skews younger. Having its video play in businesses could attract more older viewers. More, comma, older viewers. Although more older viewers would also be correct, I believe. Uh, through our partnership with Atmosphere TV, we're bringing TikTok to unexpected places that reach both new and exciting audiences, said Dan Page, head of global business development, new screens at TikTok. I love new screens. Our platform is powered by the creativity of our community, and we're excited to put a spotlight on them in venues we've never seen before. TikTok has also begun its move from smartphones to TVs in November, it released a TikTok TV app for Amazon Fire TV, Google TV, and Android TV OS devices, plus LG and Samsung smart TVs. We're showcasing the creativity of our community among new audiences that might not understand what the TikTok experience looks like or uh, the majority of our content our platform has to offer. Page said, TikTok has gotten some attention recently for several incidents, including challenges to slap teachers and vandalize schools, and more recently, warnings of potential violence at schools. Atmosphere will not include any TikTok challenges on its TikTok channel. Everything's family friendly, Rizig said. I'm sure that will happen for a while. Rizig and his brother, John Rizig, founded the photo entertainment student. The brothers Resig founded the photo entertainment website, The Kive, in 2008. Yikes. Their media company grew as they created Kive TV in 2014 and launched it on Roku in 2015. They spun Atmosphere, a free advertising-supported streaming video platform for business, out of the Kive Media Group in 2019. The move aimed to meet a growing market for free streaming TV in businesses which can pay hundreds of dollars monthly for cable and satellite programming. We made the decision to really build a business plan around creating a TV channel for every single type of business, said Mike Grisco, chief financial officer and co-founder of Atmosphere, who joined the company in 2017. So we have a channel called Happy TV, which works incredibly well for everywhere from pediatrics offices to nail salons to kid-friendly family restaurants, to superhuman TV, this is a very run-on sentence, to superhuman TV, which can be for gyms. It's just for folks doing amazing, it's just folks doing amazing, amazing stunts. Okay, I'm sure that's completely healthy and normal. Other owned and operated channels include Atmosphere News and Kive TV. Partner channels include Red Bull X Games and America's Funniest Videos. Now there's the thing that I was looking for. When I hear about stunts, I go back to the 90s and I think about people destroying their bodies in America's Funniest Home Videos. I think about, I think about, you know, a dad getting his leg bit by a, a by a wild dog or something, and everyone going, "Ha ha, that's great! I love it." <laughs> For a $99 activation fee, businesses get an Apple TV set-top box loaded with Atmosphere's app. Sports bars and restaurants play Atmosphere TV on some TVs, and live games and other 
live content and other live content on other displays. Atmosphere saw the number of businesses playing its programming double over the last year, and the company says it reached more than 20 million unique visitors each month. Partners such as TikTok get revenue from advertisers on their channels. Venues can pay to run their own advertising content, too. It's a very symbiotic relationship, Leah Rezik said. They're realizing we reach an unreachable audience for them. Uh... Okay, I'll, I think a lot of folks, especially probably older men, are like, "Am I too? I'm too old for TikTok, right? TikTok is thinking, let's get our content out in front of everyone at every age, every gender, and then maybe the light bulb will go off. Wow, I think this is really entertaining stuff. Maybe I need to download this TikTok app. Okay, so I'm just gonna say this: if you're putting it in a bar specifically to get an older male audience to get on TikTok, then you are fucking up. You're wasting your time. They already made that decision a long time ago. And, not to mention, a lot of people don't even think that they belong in that platform to begin with. For various reasons. Unrelated to uh, whether or not some kind of older male bar energy has anything to do with it. Very strange. Here's the 50 states for that Thursday. I'm going to read the New Mexico section. Santa Fe. The state's plan to address the needs of underserved indigenous students hasn't been shared with tribal leaders or the public, despite promises made by state officials to do so last year. Cool. Here's uh, Florida. Fort Lauderdale. Holy Cross Health has temporarily closed its maternity ward due to staff shortages related to COVID-19 outbreaks. Here's something else great. Fashion designer Giorgio Armani announced Tuesday he was canceling his Giorgio Armani Emporio Armani men's fashion shows in Milan this month, along with his Privé Haute Couture show in Paris because of soaring coronavirus cases in Europe. As the designer has expressed on many occasions, the shows are crucial and irreplaceable occasions, but the health and safety of both employees and the public must once again take priority, the Armani statement said. The decision makes Armani the first major designer to pull out of the Milan men's previews for fall, winter 22-23, scheduled for January 14th through 18th. All right, and uh, we're going to do a snapshot top five, uh, top 40 for 2021. This is what they got. 2021, it was 34 and 35 by Ariana. Save Your Tears by The Weeknd. Number three, Mood. 24 Karat Golden. Positions, Ariana again. And uh, Levitating by Dua Lipa, number one. I just want to take a trip through the old uh, billboards. See what's going on, like 93 or something. All right. All right, in case you're wondering what's on TV land, uh, let's see, last Thursday, it was uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, 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 Raymond, The King of Queens, and... The King of Queens. Now you know. Okay, here's a little something that'll teach us how old we are. I don't know how old you are, but I know how old I am. And I know how old this made me feel, which is young. Middle age isn't just like that. The Sex and the City reboot is populated by so many adults who don't seem to have a clue. 
Have you heard? There's a new TV show featuring 50-somethings on HBO right now. And just like that, the reboot of Sex and the City has resurrected the old gang, Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte, minus Samantha, in present-day New York City, 17 years after the last episode aired. Yes, it turns out that people, even women people, can actually keep existing beyond the age of 38. Incredible. Or at least that appears to be the perspective of the show, which depicts a world of middle-aged characters suspended in perpetual astonishment and discomfort about everything they encounter, from common political and social phenomenon to their own bodies. Warning, spoilers ahead. It's as if characters who must have been asleep, uh, must have been asleep for 20 years and awaken utterly gobsmacked to find themselves encountering things such as black professors, non-binary children, and queer longings, said Jay Castro, 54, a writer and professor of English and Ethnic Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. The characters do seem to Rip Van Winkle, uh, do seem Rip Van Winkle-like as they stumble upon and blink in amazement at very unsurprising things. Wow. Instagram. Podcasts. Marvel's Miranda at some of Carrie's latest endeavors as if they're edgy new enterprises. Some of the Wink Van Winkliest moments... Involve Miranda's foot-and-mouth disease when interacting with Nia Wallace, the black professor in her new human rights law graduate program. Charlotte, too, invinces a weird awkwardness as she cultivates a new friendship with the glamorous Lisa Todd Wexley, a wealthy, stylish black woman she meets through her daughter's private school. The show now is trying to be woke with it without succeeding, said Cheryl Packwood, 60, a lawyer and retired diplomat. I never liked the show to begin with. It was just so white and shallow. It's not at 55 that you suddenly try so hard to have a black friend. But beyond the external factors of race and politics, the protagonists seem most ill at ease with their own bodies and ages, which they refer to frequently, unnaturally, and often loudly. Examples abound. Over brunch, a discussion about Miranda's decision to go gray devolves into a barbed exchange about the ethics of color. Hair color. For Miranda, Carrie's trademark blonde highlights pass muster since they are obvious, clearly artificial, hence not trying to deceive anyone. But Charlotte's preference to maintain a more natural brown does not meet Miranda's ethical standards. Charlotte is trying to pass, in quotes, as younger, and Miranda says, oh, as Miranda says, with disapproval. There are more important issues in the world than trying to look young, she scolds, Women do talk about hair and aging, but they, are generally, they generally do not turn salon choices into grounds for moral condemnation over omelets. All right. Oh, I'm not going to read the rest of that to you, but all I'm going to say is that that show is completely out of touch, and it didn't take that article to tell me that. How close is too close? Wristbands help. And this is from, uh, yeah, the January 6th uh, Times. Leah McGowan Hare, oh, this is by Emma Goldberg. Leah McGowan Hare wants you to know one thing about her. She is a hugger. If you just met, she'll give you a hug. If you're a Salesforce client, she'll give you a hug. If you're considering signing up for Salesforce services, then you too are in line for a hug. She extended a virtual hug in the middle of a recent video call. But Ms. McGowan Hare, a vice president at Salesforce, realized that even the people who are with her on Team Hug might have changed their calculation on what is too close for comfort these days. 
So for Salesforce convention in September, which she likened to a family reunion, she landed on a solution, something to separate the huggers from the mere fist bumpers. The 1,000 attendees of the San Francisco Francisco conference, known as Dreamforce, were greeted with three options for pins to wear. Green, okay to hug. Yellow, let's do the elbow slash fist bump. Red, let's wave hello. Before someone came in, I'd be like, hold up, let me see and get ready. Miss McGowan-Hare said, scooching back her seat and mimicking the once-over she would give attendees as she located their pins. It was kind of fun. Like, even though I was green, that... uh, What was it like, though, even though you were green? It doesn't mean my green tops your yellow, right? Whatever I did, I just did it with a lot of energy. More than three months since Salesforce conference, public health conditions have shifted, with Omicron spreading fast. Uh, Hugging and even fist bumping might seem even less enticing. Still, plenty of corporate workers are still required to be in their offices or are returning in the coming months. Hmm. With new vaccine and testing rules in place. Crisis breeds innovation, and the difficulties of conducting in-person business during the pandemic have exposed office workers to a tactic once reserved mostly for camp counselors or bosses with capture the flag, captain energy, color coding. Employers who want workers to come back to their desks are trying to, be, uh, trying to accommodate different degrees of COVID risk tolerance. One approach they've landed on is offering people accessories, wristbands, or pins that signal their preferences for social distancing, masking, and shaking hands. Preserving personal space in the office isn't a challenge unique to this moment. Still, the pandemic has given the task higher stakes, especially for employees who may feel professional pressure to get face time with their bosses. And now, with case counts rising sharply, workers are in even greater need of safety strategies. At some workplaces, colorful wristbands have offered a way for people emerging from nearly two years of relative isolation to silently communicate their boundaries. As an added bonus, wristband companies whose sales plunged in 2020 when events ground to a halt were pleased to find businesses picking up again. A Wisconsin company, for example, has sold tens of millions of COVID-related bands to more than 3,000 organizations over the past 18 months. Apparently, we all need to be buying stock in wristband companies. For Wristband Resources, which is a company based outside Milwaukee... The second Friday in March 2020 was D-Day. There were no more concerts, nor festivals, or school retreats. Mike Gengler, the chief information officer, was shuttling between his home and the office, but he didn't know what to instruct his employees to do. Sales dropped to nearly zero for the company, which has 140 people on staff. About two weeks later, orders began to trickle in again. Mr. Gengler checked delivery and addresses to see where his wristbands were shipping and he found an unlikely culprit commercial construction these first-time wristband resources clients which were reopening their construction sites wanted an easy way to signify the employees who had completed their temperature screenings for the day it was a eureka moment for mr gengler and his teammates who realized that the pandemic would shepherd in unexpected uses for multicolored sets of wristbands buddy by that summer, his company was shipping hundreds, uh, was shipping wristbands to hundreds of offices that reopened. Wristband Resources ended 2020 
without any losses in online retailing. COVID-related wristbands made up about 60% of its revenue. The company finished 2021 with better online sales than it had in 2019. Once again, invest in wristband-based companies. We're going out for a laser tag event to celebrate, Mr. Gengler said. I'm proud we stayed true to who we are, while a lot of our, con- our competitors chased PPE products. <laughs> All right. Cool. We're going to stick over here making these wristbands for the people who are fucked up. Meanwhile, you make those things out there so people can't get fucked up. And we'll just do our thing. Mr. Gengler said that because of the typical holidays slowdown in business, it was too early to see how Omicron would affect his sales. Though, he added, some other companies might use wristbands for identification purposes as their vaccine mandates take effect in the coming weeks. And he's coming up with all the creative uses of colored wristbands. At Colliding Co., an international law firm, the wristband strategy seemed to provide a measure of relief for the team members who were apprehensive about the interpersonal complexities of in-person work. The firm had required its more than 2,000 employees in Britain to return to the office uh, two days a week starting in September, though after recent government guidance, those staff members are now working from home again. (laughs) Emma Thorne, an assistant of the firm, had fielded anxious questions about the impending return to office of all uh, to all office all summer from her parents, one of whom is going through medical treatment that compromises immunity. Ms. Thorne, also pregnant, is another factor in the desire to maintain some distance from colleagues. With her red wristband, she was able to walk around the office without repeatedly spelling out her safety preferences. It's me not having to have a conversation with someone saying, oh, please, would you mind keeping your distance, she said. Sometimes that could be misconstrued as being rude, whereas the red wristband shows it purely because of the pandemic. (laughs) Can I get one of these red wristbands, please? The behavioral changes that the wristbands encourage were subtle but comforting. Clyde and Co.'s team members said... When people saw something in a red wrist, uh, someone in a red wristband approach, they might put on their mask and refrain from physical gestures like handshakes. The firm reported that the green labels seemed to be most popular. Businesses that want more high-tech COVID protective measures have plenty of choices. Cisco, for example, who has made its return to the office optional, equipped its conference rooms with technology that notifies people when they have exceeded the maximum occupancy limit. The devices also inform workers that their air quality in, of their air quality in the space, as well as how recently the rooms were cleaned. But some executives said they have found it easiest to let workers communicate their office comfort levels and comfort wristbands allow that for a more tailored approach. Workers can elect for green wristbands once a week, then swap out for red ones the next. (laughs) Right. I'm sure the boss will love that. It's quite nice to know how you can approach people. Are you comfortable sitting next to them? What distance do you keep? Rather than asking what might have been an awkward position, Louisa Robbins a partner at Clyde & Co.'s Manchester office, who at 53 wore a green wristband, partly because she felt it put her junior colleagues at ease. Youngsters like to be in the office, and I want them to know that I think it's as safe as they do, she added. Hmm. 
Nikki Burge, the head of human resources for Direct Online Services, a kitchen product retailer in Britain, ordered multicolor wristbands for when her 300-person team started coming back to the office in August, although they are now working from home again because of the spike in COVID cases, once again. Ms. Burge uh, wore green, which she attributed to being an extrovert and a trusting character. One day, she showed up at the monthly staff meeting and noticed a nearby colleague wearing a yellow wristband, so she moved to a seat farther from him. <laughs> I don't... There's a very sinister air about this whole thing. What I really didn't want is for someone to constantly explain how they were feeling, Miss Burge said. <laughs> Hate that. Hate when someone's telling me how they're feeling. Having to say I've got someone sick at home seven times a day when you're making coffee isn't easy. It's a lot of coffee. Navigating risk tolerance with friends or relatives can be somewhat simpler, she added, because people have often gone through months of lockdown together and understand one another's sensitivities. Those discussions can be trickier among coworkers, especially for brand new employees. It's not easy to introduce yourself by giving a detailed explanation of your comfort with proximity and touch. As employees entered Mrs. Burge's office and passed the containers with wristbands, they were also reminded of something fundamental. Everyone has different needs in terms of privacy and space. Office workers have long struggled to find the language to convey to their teammates a desire for distance. Some are hopeful that the new strategies for articulating those preferences might improve workplace culture long-term. Quote, prior to the pandemic, I would go in to hug people and never even think they didn't want to be hugged, Ms. McGowan-Hare reflected. Now we're able to set the tone for how you interact. And I would say that I don't know if you need wristbands to know how to act, but that would be just me. I would also just be wearing the red wristband the entire time so that everyone stays away. But, um, you know, that's just me. This is in the same issue of the Times. Tarantino defying suit will sell NFTs of Pulp Fiction by Efrat Livni. When Quentin Tarantino and the movie studio Miramax agreed on the rights to Pulp Fiction in the early 1990s, cryptocurrency didn't exist. Now, Mr. Tarantino is courting controversy with a crypto twist over ownership of the cult movie script that could set a legal precedent for intellectual property rights. On Wednesday, the director announced auctions of non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, associated with his original handwritten screenplay, despite a pending lawsuit by Miramax. Mr. Tarantino has been thwarted before. In November, after he announced plans for an auction, Miramax sued, claiming breach of contract and various intellectual property violations. In December, the director's lawyers denied the accusations, but the sales did not proceed. A hearing to schedule the lawsuit's next steps is set for February, according to the court docket. Mr. Tarantino's latest plans to sell the NFTs this month could prompt Miramax to deter uh, demand an emergency block of the auctions until legal issues are resolved. And they probably do that through an injunction, I assume. I'm actually really surprised they didn't already file an injunction, but I guess he has to attempt to actually do the thing that they don't want before they can do that. NFTs are chunks of code associated with images, sound, or video files recorded on the blockchain. Think of them as digital certificates of authenticity. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Miramax's lawyers argue that NFTs are unique Non-fungible is the name, after all. Mr. Tarantino's legal team argues that he is merely reproducing copies of his original script. 
a right he reserved. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's just a, it's a handwritten manuscript. It's not actually like the script that they went from. It's not even the final script. Um, someone could mint hundreds or thousands of unique NFTs linked to the same creative network, kind of like a printing many copies of a book, said Frank Garantra, an intellectual property expert at Mints in Boston. In that sense, although each one has its own unique identifier on a blockchain, NFTs may not be considered distinct. The question is likely to come up again, Mr. Garanta said, given growing interest in cryptocurrencies, whether whoever wins this fight may forever mark the law. I don't know if this is the deciding factor, but when it comes to scripts, I would say that the outcome of his case may impact scripts specifically. Although someone could turn that into a claim of a case of copyrighted works, but he's, he's basically just... Um, I mean, the idea is he's giving you ownership of a page through an auction house, which will ver which will probably retain ownership, and then the NFTs will be exchanged, however they are, between people at any point um, to exchange actual ownership of those pages. Fascinating. Here's something else fascinating. PG&E equipment blamed for Dixie Fire. A tree hitting power lines is cited as the cause of a California blaze by Ivan Penn. Same issue. California fire investigators on Tuesday pinned the blame for the Dixie Fire, the second largest blaze in the state's history, on equipment owned by Pacific Gas and Electric and referred the case to prosecutors. The Dixie Fire burned more than 963,000 acres in Northern California, uh, the areas of Butte, Plumas, Lawson, Shasta, and Tahama counties in July, destroying 1,329 buildings and damaging 95 others. The cause investigators determined was a tree that came into contact with PG&E's power lines near the Cresta Dam about 100 miles north of Sacramento. Investigators at the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, known as CAL FIRE, referred their, to, uh, referred their findings to the Butte County District Attorney, who previously brought the charges against PG&E after the uh, for the 2018 campfire, which killed scores of people and destroyed the town of Paradise. In that case, PG&E pleaded to 84 felony counts of involuntary manslaughter and one felony count of illegally setting a fire. As a power company pleading guilty to 84 felony counts of manslaughter. <laughs> wow. The utility also agreed to pay $3.5 million in fines as part of the criminal police. So who do you send to jail? No one, I guess, right? Because it's a company? That's, that's the standing situation. <sighs> this tree was one of more than 8 million trees within strike distance to PG&E lines, the utility said. Regardless of today's finding, we will continue to be tenacious in our efforts to stop fire ignitions from our equipment and to ensure that everyone and everything is always safe. PG&E has charges pending in Shasta County, where the district attorney has charged the utility with manslaughter, along with other felonies and misdemeanors, in connection with the Zog Fire, which burned more than 56,000 acres and destroyed 204 buildings near Redding. Since 2017, PG&E has been the focus of the state's extreme wildfires that have been made worse by climate change. The company has taken numerous steps to prevent wildfires, including installing weather stations and cameras, 
The utility has also resorted to the extreme measure of cutting off power sometimes to millions of people for days. After PG&E amassed $30 billion in liability from the wildfires caused by its equipment, the utility sought bankruptcy protection in January 2019. The company exited bankruptcy in July 2020, promising to work to prevent further wildfires. The victims of the fires had continued to seek compensation for their losses that became part of the company's bankruptcy plan. The Dixie Fire, which is the one that the article is about, um, among at least three fires that PG&E's equipment were suspected of causing last year, underscored the lingering threat of wildfires caused by utility equipment. <sighs> Here's a cool story. Yachts up. This is in the uh, January 6th New York Post. New year, new yacht. The holidays continue for Leonardo DiCaprio above, looking like Leonardo DiCaprio, on Tuesday. The Don't Look Up star was spotted relaxing aboard a super yacht along his one-time pussy posse bro, Luke Haas. The 47-year-old star Haas soaked up the sun together, and uh, Leo looked relaxed as he propped his hands behind his head and stared out into the clear blue yonder. He spent New Year's Eve on a $150 million yacht, with a crowd including Jeff Bezos, Drake, and Jake Paul. I love to spend New Year's Eve on a yacht with Jake Paul, Jeff Bezos, Drake, Luke Haas, and Leo. Here's something I bet you didn't even know about. Good riddance. NFL punts Wunderlich IQ test. Now, I don't know how to pronounce this. Um, it could be Wunderlich could be Wunderlich. Who knows? I'm going to say Wunderlich. Uh, it's an IQ test for football players. It's from uh, the same day paper. A lot of good bangers on last Thursday. No, the Wunderlich isn't totally dead, but it's close to the end, and you know what? Good riddance. I wouldn't say, I would say rest in peace, but that would be a lie. I don't want it to do that. I want it to be forgotten, to be seen as a relic, to be scorned, to be seen as one of the worst ideas the NFL ever has, because it is. Did I say that this is a column? By the way, it is. It's a column. The NFL obviously feels the same way because the league announced it was no longer using the test. This is by Mike Freeman of the USA Today Network. The Associated Press was the first to report on a memo distributed by the league office to member clubs that the 50-question intelligence test annually used during the pre-draft process was no longer going to be used at the scouting combine. Later, however... The league office clarified the NFL itself will no longer administer the test, but individual teams can. But this in itself is significant and means that while the Wonderlick isn't officially dead, the controversial test is pretty much a goner. That's because it's, it's a likely number of players. It's likely a number of players would refuse to take it since it's no longer mandated by the NFL. It could easily become like players at the scouting combine refusing to run on the 40-yard dash or declining to participate in it at all. In fact, the prospect would be crazy to take it now, and my guess, fewer will, and soon the test will be deader than Richard Nixon. If you're unfamiliar with the Wonderlick, it became one of the most notorious, hated, and feared of all the pre-draft tests. The NFL stubbornly used the test as a measure of intelligence when it had nothing really to do with football, and it was, for the most part, a useless tool. Yet the NFL, which often has stuck with something, the reason this story about the league office abandoning the test is important isn't solely about the test. It's about what it stood for. 
It's a 1950s mentality at the time when the NFL is trying to move to a more progressive future, at least progressive for the NFL. The league also stated in this memo obtained by the AP that it issued a warning to teams that they could lose a draft pick no later than the fourth round and face a fine if a team employee behaves in a way that's, quote, disrespectful, inappropriate, or unprofessional. We aim for dignity, respect, and professionalism, league executive Troy Vincent told the AP. It's that simple. The Combine has long been one of the most humiliating parts of the draft process, and some of the questions asked of players have often crossed the line into cruel and disgusting territory. I call this the Des Bryant rule because in 2010, the star receiver was asked at the Combine if his mother was a prostitute. Fuck. Jesus. The league is clearly trying to move in a better direction where players don't feel like pieces of meat. The NFL is not instituting the Wonderlick as part of that process. Oh, the NFL? Okay. In many ways, the test has become essentially useless because so many versions of it were leaked to agents, which then used them as practice tests for clients. An agent gave me several versions once. I studied all of them, took the test, and did well on it. And I'm an idiot. An agent once told me that in the days prior to taking the test, his player couldn't sleep, not because he was concerned about the results, but because he was terrified his scores would eventually leak to the media. And that will remain one of the insidious afterimages of the Wonderlick. The leaking of scores to the media was one of the most disgraceful parts of the testing process. In some cases, agents leaked high scores to their clients to boost their public image and potentially their draft stock. In others, agents would obtain scores of potential draft rivals, and if those scores were, were low, leak them to the press to hurt the stock of another player. In some of the most nefarious cases, teams would leak low scores to players they actually wanted to draft, hoping the public embarrassment would scare off teams considering drafting the player. Oh yes, that happened. Even worse, some of the leaked scores were inaccurate. In some cases, this was accidental. In others, it wasn't. It was a mess. And one of the better examples of how inane that test is, it was reported in 2014 that Johnny Manziel had one of the higher scores of the quarterback group. Manziel's NFL career lasted two years. Hopefully, this is the beginning of your end, Wonderlick. Interesting. Here's a story about a dog. Ugga X, Ugga 10, actually, will be in Indianapolis, but getting him there is challenging. This is, by Ath this is in uh, Athens, Georgia, by, I'm going to say, Riney... Ryan, Ryan, Ryan Dennis. Georgia football mascot Ugga 10 will be in Lucas Oil Stadium for the national championship game. That's for certain. What's not assured just yet is how he's getting there. Charles Seller, the owner and handler of Georgia's lovable mascot, has looked into fights. Flights. <laughs> Peaked at the weather and contemplated lo loading Q, Ugga's official name, into his car but he's still open to options for getting college football's top mascot to Indianapolis for Monday night's national title game against Alabama. We don't have a plan exactly, uh, Seiler said on Tuesday afternoon. Personally, I've never driven any higher than Bowling Green, Kentucky, especially this time of year, but we're, we're looking at everything. You've never driven north of Bowling Green, Kentucky, and you live in Georgia. All right, fair enough. At least you admit it. Ugga returned to the sideline this season after the NCAA and Southern Conference mandates restricted mascots from attendance in 2020. 
Siler, whose father, Sonny, began the tradition in the 1950s, and Ugga usually travel with the team to games away from Georgia's Sanford Stadium. Given the team's arrival to Indianapolis on Friday, that's too long for Q to be away from his Savannah home, Siler said. We don't take the dog early. There's no reason to take him that early, said Siler, who added they usually arrive the day before the game and leave the morning after. It's kind of an in-and-out thing for us, so we do have a couple days to determine what I'm going to do. Delta added a couple of extra flights directly from Savannah to Indianapolis, Siler heard, while driving into work Tuesday morning, which could be an option. But Siler added, there has to be several exceptions made for Ugga to fly in a plane that's not affiliated with the team. Since 9-11, we don't fly him commercially unless he can fly up top, Siler said. It's got to be a special circumstance. When he flies with the team, he's up top and in the exit row with me. That's not a problem. But I don't know how Delta would treat him at this point. We definitely wouldn't fly him if he had to be in the basement of the plane. So that all plays into it. Siler is leaning towards making the near 800-mile drive, although there is chance of rain and cold weather along Sunday's, Sunday's planned route. The distance is the only deterrent, Siler said, because he prefers having his vehicle near the stadium for Q. I'm not opposed to driving, and I like to have... I just realized the dog's name is Q. I'm not opposed to driving, and I like <laughs> to have my vehicle at the venue because he's more comfortable that way, Siler said. At this point, we're just weighing everything. When Georgia last played the national title, the trek to Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium was simpler for Siler and Uga. And unlike the 2019 Sugar Bowl against Texas, when Bevo the Longhorn charged towards Bulldog's mascot during a photo opportunity, Uga will be the lone live animal in Lucas Oil Stadium. Interesting uh, event there of a Longhorn uh, charging towards a Bulldog mascot. We do not fear other animals, Siler joked. Ugo will be on the field donning his unique championship game jersey on Monday before the 8 p.m. Eastern kickoff. Everything up to that point, however, is questionable. I'm still up in the air a little bit, Siler said, but he's going to be there. And that's what's going on in the world of sports. Seems cool. Seems great. I like that dog. Seems cute. Who knows anything else about the dog? Okay. Here's a Saturday-Sunday uh, Wall Street Journal. I'm just going to read this little section right here. Two spots. One spot. Overheard. Can anxious cruisers breathe a sigh of relief? A video of touchless elevator buttons in a ship shared on Twitter earlier this week from a passenger with a, quote, mind-blown emoji didn't float many boats. Great solution for an airborne virus, someone pointed out. Another joke about the low likelihood that a drunk cruiser would be able to line up their finger without touching anything. All fun and games until some five-year-old waves his hand in front of the whole thing and you stop on all 18 floors. Chimed in another. A spokesperson for Royal Caribbean said buttons are, on a relatively, are a relatively new feature the company offers in at least some ships. They aren't mandated by the Centers for D Disease Control um, or even necessarily related to the pandemic and instead are an innovation aimed at improving guest experiences. More improvement is needed according to the CDC's website, uh, etc. Um, I just like the idea of a kid waving his hand in front of these buttons and everyone on the cruise ship going, wow, we're on a cruise ship with a kid who's waving his hand at all 18 floors of the buttons. 
and no one being able to do anything about it. A video game slump comes to a head. Turtle Beach says big game releases have misfired. And I believe this is uh, pretty accurate. I'm just going to read it word for word here. Uh, the biggest video game releases during the holiday season apparently weren't enough to inspire gamers to crank things up. They were not. Turtle Beach, which specializes in headphones designed for gaming, said late Wednesday that revenue for the full year 2021 will come in around $365 million, the low end of its progress, uh, previously issued forecast. That indicates fourth quarter revenue of around $108 million, which is about 6% shy of Wall Street's forecasts and down nearly 19% from the same period a year earlier. Turtle Beach shares fell 3% Thursday. Um, that totally makes sense. They're normally making headsets. Everyone bought them last year. Everyone doesn't need them again this year. Citing recently reported holiday sales trends across the gaming industry as a reason for issuing its preliminary figures earlier than usual, Turtle Beach went on to add, quote, poor performing AAA game launches, end quote, to the list of factors affecting its sales. Tough comparisons to 2020 and supply chain snarls also contributed. I would also say the fact that they're putting out virtually nothing of worth of interest recently. Um, almost through any of the pipelines is probably the biggest reason. The company didn't name specific games, but publishers Activision... Uh, bleh, excuse me. But publishers Activision Blizzard, Electronic Arts, and Take-Two Interactive Software, the company that makes GTA, um, saw their shares fall by 3% or more on Thursday. All three had issues with major launches in November, Activision's Call of Duty Vanguard and Battlefield 2042 from Electronic Arts. Significant releases in the important shooter category got the lowest critic scores of their respective franchises, Deser deservedly, I might add. Martin Yang of Oppenheimer noted Thursday that the latest update from Warzone, the online free-to-play version of Call of Duty, also, quote, failed to provide meaningful uplift for the Vanguard game. I agree, it did. It's basically the same. Gamers certainly didn't buy a new headset for each new game, but major releases do spark an uplift of sales, Turtle Beach Chief Executive Jurgen Stark said in an investment conference in 2017 that Call of Duty and Battlefield are among the games that drive a 3x increase in sell-through with new releases. He memorably, memorably added that the average life of a gaming headset is 18 to 24 months, not because they lack durability, but because, quote, people tend to throw them across the room. They get encrusted with Cheetos or whatever, end quote. Apparently, the latest batch of games failed to inflame players' passions or appetites. Thank you, Dan Gallagher, for covering that. Uh, yes, it's, it's bad out there. Here's something great. You're going to love this. Red grouper season reopens and ready to be caught. This is by Will Garrity in the uh, special of the Naples Daily News, although it is in my news press. A myriad of conditions kept New Year's anglers on their toes, both shallow and deep. Leading up to the first day of 2022, calm conditions reign supreme, only to be replaced by a fast-racing frontal boundary that provided a brief period of strong winds, high seas, and a welcome adjustment to summer-like humidity levels. While the strong front did stymie the offshore effort, the conditions rapidly improved, allowing anglers safe and comfortable commutes to the red grouper grounds. The popular fishery reopened in federal waters on January 1st after a closure was announced by NOAA Fisheries back on October 15th. Catch reports throughout the region indicate that fish are still in the traditional haunts and eager to snap up a deployed natural bait or large-profile jig. 
Red groupers are slow to grow and can reach up to 50 inches in length. Spawning frequently up to 26 cycles per year in shallow water from February to June, red grouper feed on a wide variety of fish, octopus, and crustaceans. Red grouper is one of the top apex predators within the reef community food web and are believed to play a role in some aspects of the community balance within the reef system. Within the same range of ideal red grouper depths of 70 to 90 feet, anglers are reporting that mangrove and yellowtail snapper are responding well to heavy chumming and light, tack light tackle tactics over limestone ledges while over and around select artificial reefs slash wrecks uh, greater amberjack and cobia are testing the skills and wills of those hooking up cobia are fun to catch anglers prospecting middle and back base systems with live bait lures and flies are still crossing paths with hungry snook and schooled up with redfish focusing on points shorelines possessing ample current and structure during the high tides has been best look for this trend to be consistently in flux as frontal passages and the conditions, both good and trying, left behind in their wake will dictate the bites. Along with the exciting game fish, sheep's head, speckled trout, and a scattering of pompano were also keeping the rods bent. This trio of excellent table fare can be targeted inside area passes, over the flats, and along the beaches where the gulf is calm. For catching success, try casting jigs, freelining live shrimp, or sinking a shrimp presentation to the bottom rigged on light tackle. It is indeed that time of year where timing will make or break the success of an outing. Typical for the teeth of winter stretch, the fronts are headed south, with them added challenges to contend with. Pick your days wisely, with a focus on periods before a frontal passage while barometric pressure is dropping and therefore, when conditions relax, become safe and your designated targeted species returns to a normal feeding pattern. I thought that was fascinating angler info. It even goes in a little more depth in your local area, but I don't think you live in the described zones. Okay. Already read about Evergrande and that. Oh, yes. One more thing to catch up on. We talked about this earlier. I'm going to revisit this specific topic right here. 911 call may be key to Echo the Tiger case. It could bring criminal charge, a legal expert says. This is uh, the Saturday News Press by Rachel Hyman Mercator of the Naples Daily News. A 911 tape may be key to getting charges filed against a Naples man involved in the attack that left a Naples zoo tiger dead, according to an FGCU law professor. Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission Captives Wildlife Section is investigating the December 29th incident, which occurred after closing at the zoo. A Collier County Sheriff's deputy responded to a 911 call for help at the zoo around 6.30 p.m. Officials said River Stephen... Rosenquist made the call after he scaled a four and a half foot fence and approached an eight year old Malayan tiger, Echo, sticking his hand through the enclosure. Rosenquist, 26, a contract employee for a crew hired to clean the restrooms and gift shop at the zoo, suffered severe injuries when Echo grabbed his arm and refused to release it. This forced a CCSO deputy to shoot the big cat, as a uh, Collier County Sheriff's Office deputy. 
Echo, the only tiger at the zoo, is part of a breeding program. There are only about 200 that remain in the wild. The tiger died quickly from significant internal bleeding after the deputy's bullet tore through his left shoulder into the thoracic wall and the great vessels at the base of the heart, according to a necropsy performed Monday. The last time we read the article, the necropsy, it was questionable as if it was even going to be released, but it has been made public. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission law enforcement spokesperson Shannon Knowles said this week that his investigation is ongoing and wouldn't speculate on any possible criminal charges that could be filed. FGCU law professor Pamela C.A. C.A. Pamela C.A. told the Naples Daily News that, quote, while the death may not have been on purpose, those... While the death may not have been on purpose... The act that he did do, sticking his arm into the cage, that was purposeful and intentional. Failure to look at the consequences of that brings in the idea of negligence. C.A. said she believes there is also a strong case for pressing trespassing charges against Rosenquist. If I were the prosecutor here, I would want to get the federal government involved because this is far more than a state incident, she said. This is a national and even an international uh, treaty because we're supposed to be protecting an endangered species. On Wednesday, Fish and Wildlife Commission told the Naples Daily News that they are not aware of any other state or official agency, federal agencies that have officially been brought in to help review the case. Although it will happen. Um, let's see. The 911 call may be key. CA, a 24 year tenured law professor at FTCU with special interest in international constitutional and criminal law said there are few precedents that can be compared to this situation. The 2016 death of Harambe, a 17-year-old western lowland gorilla killed at the Cincinnati Zoo after a three-year-old boy climbed into the gorilla enclosure, resulted in no criminal charges against the parents of the child. However, in March 2021, a man was charged with child endangerment and unlawfully entering a San Diego zoo enclosure to take a photograph with an elephant next to his daughter. No person or animal was harmed, and the man pleaded not guilty to both charges. His case is still pending, and if convicted, he faces more than six years in custody for the felony child endangerment and misdemeanor trespassing counts, according to prosecutors. Less than 24 hours after the incident, the Collier County Sheriff's Office posted the 911 call and body camera footage on Facebook from the Naples incident, which has been mostly blurred and whatever, but you can go find it if you want. I'm going to just assume what happened from the description. While clearly under distress, Rosenquist called 911 at 6.26 p.m. for help as the tiger's jaw clamped down on his arm. His voice is high, and the operator mistakes him for a woman, according to the 911 call released by the Collier County Sheriff's Office. Punctuated with shrieks and screams, the 911 call has him pleading for help, apologizing, and begging officers to, quote, hurry and shoot the tiger for more than nine minutes before rescuers arrive. Please jump the fence. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. you got to shoot it. It's eating my arm. It's killing me. Please shoot it, he has heard saying in the recording. CA says this shows he had knowledge and a realization that he knew what he was doing and what he was doing was wrong and what he was doing could cause serious consequences to the animal. He then tries to save himself and in doing so ended in the death of the tiger. Another notable zoo incident happened in 20, 2007 when a female Siberian tiger was killed by police at the San Francisco Zoo after fatally mauling a man and 
failing after fatally mauling a man after his friends allegedly provoked the tiger into leaping and clawing out of its enclosure. Following the mauling, police conducted an inquiry into whether the tiger may have been taunted before escaping and whether drugs or alcohol may have been involved in the incident, but ultimately suspended the investigation without filing any charges against the two surviving friends. And I will editorialize a little bit and say that uh, the fact that uh, alcohol was most certainly almost definitely a factor probably led to the fact that they stopped the investigation because if they would have done the investigation then the only outcome of the investigation was probably going to be that they would have to remove alcohol from the park and if you know anything about the way that zoos make money these days or any kind of museum or whatever concessions or uh top dollar way of making a profit um especially when it comes to you know uh alcohol in theme parks which is a very quickly growing um trend ever since disney started allowing alcohol in the park at large from everywhere from animal kingdom to whatever um i've been thinking about this so uh, all i know is when i was walking around animal kingdom uh getting drunk one of the very last times that i would off of uh you know alcoholic dole whips that um yeah that shouldn't be i don't know it seemed weird to look at a lion while you're drunk or an alligator for that matter I don't know. Seems like just strange occurrence. Um, let's see. Two years after the San Francisco Zoo incident, um, they paid $900,000 as part of a settlement to two survivors. Sia says this kind of scenario is not likely to play out in the Naples case. My gut reaction is that he, Rosenquist, could not be successful in filing any kind of similar lawsuit because he was in an area he specifically knew he did not belong. As a trespasser, the zoo owes him a duty of informing him of the dangers. The training he had to have to work in his position shows that he had knowledge and ignored all of that information and warnings and instructions. Quote, there are very few reasons why anyone else would be responsible for anything that happened to him. End quote. The cleaning crew employed by HMI Cleaning Inc., is supposed to be restricted to the zoo's restrooms and gift shop, and their employees are not allowed in animal enclosures. The zoo has since suspended its contract with HMI. I'm just going to read a little bit, um, give you context here. This was not a tiger attack, says a sign above, left in the parking lot of the Naples Zoo at Caribbean Gardens on December 30th. So people definitely already have opinions about this. Potential civil consequences. CA said that in cases dealing with the death of a non-endangered species, the animal is considered property under the law, which limits its protections. Therefore, cases involving the death of animals, such as a pet dog, for example, consider the, quote, cost or market value of the animal during civil litigation. However, according to Howard Baskin of the Tampa-based animal sanctuary Big Cat Rescue, Settling on a price for a tiger like Echo is not so cut and dry. Baskin is married to prominent animal rights activist Carol Baskin. First of all, it is illegal to sell a tiger under the Endangered Species Act. There used to be an exception that changed in 2016 to make it illegal, and that is part of what Joe Exotic is in jail for, end quote, Baskin told the Naples Daily News. In 2020, Netflix Tiger King docuseries star Joe Exotic Maldonado Passage was sentenced to 22 years in federal prison for his role in a murder-for-hire scheme to kill Carol Baskin, as well as multiple violations of wildlife laws, 
including big cats. Baskin said that accredited zoos do not sell tigers to each other. Rather, they are able to get official wildlife service exemptions for transferring tigers based on the conservation value, based on the conservation value of what they can offer. Sounds like selling by a different name, but we'll we'll continue. Outside of this legitimate practice, the most valuable cubs are only ones that are are the only ones that are young enough to pet, according to Baskin. For a one-month-old cub, you might be able to get one of the other exhibitors to give you five thousand dollars for it, but six months later, it's worthless. It's a liability because you cannot make money off of petting, and you have to feed it. So I do not think there is a dollar value you can place on an eight-year-old tiger, like Echo Baskin said. The ramifications of cub petting are a major reason why Howard and Carol Baskin are advocating for the passage of the Big Cat Public Safety Act, a bill that would prohibit cruel activities associated with the big cat trade. In the wake of the Netflix docuseries and heightened public attention to the exploitation of captive big cats, the legislation passed the U.S. House of Representatives by a strong bipartisan majority in 2020. However, it was not taken up by the Senate before the 116th Congress closed. In January 2021, the bill was reintroduced in the House where it awaits another vote. Calls for action. Last week, a change.org petition was created calling for criminal charges to be brought against Rosenquist. By Thursday morning, there were more than 17,000 signatures. There is now one less beautiful creature on the planet thanks to the irresponsible and ignorant actions of this man, wrote Melissa Alt, the creator of the petition named Justice for Echo. Charges of a criminal nature must be filed, and while the man has suffered medical consequences, he must yield, he must be held accountable for the loss. Please add your support and demand for Collier County pressing charges against him and the cleaning company. A similar effort by the nonprofit organization Tiger Exotic Animal Ranger Awareness was made this week by a Facebook post. The group said it, quote, strongly condemns the brutal killing of Echo due to the criminal and narcissistic actions of River Rosenquist. End quote. Police departments will always choose human life, even the life of a criminal who caused the entire tragedy, over the life of even the most endangered animal. The statement reads, Thus, as a deterrent to other tragedies, there needs to be an automatic jail term of 20 years in federal prison, they say. All I know is when I started this show, I didn't expect to read anything from uh, Howard or Carol Baskin. Uh, let's see. Okay, we'll make this the last one. This has to be the last one. And then, then we'll do a quick, uh, a quick book reading. Alex phone hang-up. As New Mexico, Long Island, cops fight for it. By Aaron Steinbuck and Natalie O'Neill, and this is in the Saturday, January 8th New York Post. New Mexico authorities investigating Alec Baldwin's deadly onset shooting are working with police on Long Island to get the actor's cell phone, officials said on Friday. The Santa Fe Sheriff's Office and New Mexico First Judicial District Attorney's Office are, quote, actively working with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office and Baldwin's lawyers to get the phone, an official told Fox News. On December 16th, 
Santa Fe authorities issued a search warrant for Baldwin's phone after he refused to hand it over because they believed it contains key conversations related to what led to the prop gun death of a cinematographer, Halnia, excuse me, Helena Hutchins, in October. A Baldwin, 63, has yet to turn the phone over to New Mexico cops, the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department said Friday. The Suffolk County Sheriff's Office has received a request from the Santa Fe, New Mexico authorities requesting assistance in obtaining Alec Baldwin's phone, said, Parle, said Sergeant Paul Spinella. Um, this request has been forwarded to the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office to work out the differences between the laws in New Mexico and New York. As this is an ongoing investigation, that is all the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office can report at this time. Essential information. Conversations about the doomed production were found in Hutchins' phone dating back to July 14th, according to the authorities, who said that gathering information prior to the start of the film date or the start date of Rust is essential for a full investigation. The 30 Rock star said he never pulled the trigger and has no idea how the live round got on set. <laughs> yeah. The New York uh, no, the New Mexico prosecutor handling the case had said some people handled some people who handle firearms on the set may face criminal charges over Hutchins' death. A spokesman, which would probably include the people responsible for handling weapons on set, which in this case would have probably been ultimately the prop master who should be in charge of the armor, I believe, but also in this case, the armor that they hired, which would probably be the grandfather of the woman who showed up on site to actually be the armor. Potentially all three of those people, but also potentially the person running the whole show, who was also directing the whole show and writing the whole show and acting the whole show, which was uh, Alec Baldwin, and also executive producing and financing the whole show. That'd be my guess. Um, a spokesman for Baldwin and Set, who owns a home in Amagasset, did not respond to requests for comment by Reuters. Privacy or contempt? Legal experts theorize there may be several reasons why Baldwin is holding on to his phone. He may be concerned about the possibility of, quote, incriminating evidence on the phone, or he may simply want to keep his private conversations out of the public eye. There could be incriminating evidence on the phone, or it might be for privacy reasons, they repeat, uh, said Kevin Kirsten, a former prosecutor in the Nassau County DA's office who is now a criminal defense lawyer. If he deleted text messages or call records, then he would face the possibility of criminal contempt, said Kieran, who works at the Long Island firm Barkett Epstein Kieran. Or if there are personal messages, for example, between he and his wife, uh, it's not shocking that he wouldn't want them in the public domain. The actor may believe that handing over his whole, quote, whole phone is, quote, overbroad, said L.A.-based criminal defense attorney Louis Shapiro. For Baldwin to say, quote, uh, for Baldwin to say get a warrant might come across as arrogant or not forthcoming, but that's pretty common, Shapiro said. He might be saying, if you want my whole phone, that gets into my personal life, and I don't want you to pull other people into this. Well, too bad. That's what's going to happen. I mean, read it before. It's going to happen. They're going to get that phone. They're going to find out. They're going to find messages, and they're going to find all brand new context for the investigation they've already been doing, and they'll find out that some things fit in the place that, that they've been wondering about. And then we will find out in the public eye. And uh, here, I'll put these things to the side. Save those for next time. 
That must be good ASMR for people who love paper. Mmm, paper. Okay, so. Today I'm going to read a little bit from a very interesting book that I just purchased yesterday at a state park in Estero, Florida. This is published by the Koreshin Unity, Inc. It is written by Koresh, a man also known as Cyrus Teed. Um, let's see. Its edition is a reprint of one compiled from the writings of Koresh, Dr. Cyrus R. Teed, including the results of experiments and investigations made by the Koreshin geodetic staff, which have definitively proved the most startling and revolutionary discovery of the age that the earth is concave and all life is contained within its confines. Koresh is the founder of the Koreshian system of religio science, author of volumes of Koreshian literature. Uh, this version was printed in 1983, it looks like. Dedication. This little work shall never cease its influence until every vestige of the fallacies and evils of a perverted science and religion shall have been relegated to oblivion. To the first fruits of the resurrection, offspring of the Lord, I supremely dedicate it. Thence to all men in all grades of progress, in their liberation from the thraldom to ignorance, and the hells of the competitive system. Koresh. The man was very wise, despite anything else he might have been wrong about, specifically. Let's go ahead and read the table of contents of this uh, wonderful book here. There's an introduction, then there's a, a segment... The first section is called The Cellular Cosmogony, which is the title of the book. It was first published in 1922, although I believe it was published internally before that. The Koreshian people, um, it, it can be best described as a cult in today's terminology, though I don't think that really describes exactly what they were. They were more of a commune, and they were very successful despite some of their unusual beliefs. The only thing that was really unsuccessful about them is that their leader died at a young age, really, before he was able to implement any kind of plan for his succession, mostly because he believed that he would be resurrected days after his death. But, um, you know, that didn't happen. And he was on a very correct path for creating society. I mean, at the time... In Estero, Florida, when he created his uh, community in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, I mean, they were providing power and theater entertainment to um, the surrounding community. I mean, realistically, at the time, they had electricity before anyone in the area except for in um, Fort Myers, uh, which only had electricity because of uh, Thomas Edison and, and Henry Ford's presence. Um, and realistically... I know, I, I have a guess that the electrification of uh, the Koreshian uh, facility had to do something with their, um, 
modernization. They're, they're, they, they came from the cities. They, they came from Chicago. They came from Philadelphia. They came from New York. They came from San Francisco. So they wanted um, modern conveniences. They wanted theater. They weren't just a commune. I mean, they had power as a crucial element. They had a giant generator. It's still there, or at least a, a, like a, a, a recreation of it is there, um, a replacement from a different location. I mean, they had, they had electric power in the 1800s in this small little commune of just a couple hundred people living a completely unique life, running a store, selling goods to the surrounding community. I mean, at the time, they were Estero, Florida. And uh, Estero, Florida is now, you know, much bigger and, you know, kind of in many ways the heart of Southwest Florida. So, and they, they started it all, this group of people. Carician Universology predicated an absolutely demonstrated pre- premise, world face-to-face with a radical astronomical revolution, form of the universe, the great alchemio organic world, motion and function, cause and motion, remote cause of physical motion, cause of motion from biblical and theolo- theological point of view, procession of equinoxes related to astrobiological manifestations, transposition of mental force to physical energy, cause of motion of planetary disci, Knowledge of universal form necessary. That is the description of the subheads of the chapters in the first section. Um, But allow me to skip right to page 185, which they get to the conclusions that they have been uh, getting to in a very wordy way. Okay. Results in inevitable conclusions. Details and measurements and extension of the airline into the water. When we suspended the plumb line at the first adjustment of the geodetic apparatus, we established beyond all doubt that the direction of the Earth's radius or the perpendicular at the initial station. Poised upon the pivot of the adjustment, the bubble in the graduated vial of the spirit level measured equal distances from the central division of the scale. The mercury in the 12-foot mercurial geodesic, uh, geodetic level stood at equal altitudes in the perpendicular tubes in demonstration of the fact that the level at right angles with the perpendicular radius of the Earth. The plum and level invariably tell the truth. They are silent witnesses testifying from the standpoint of unseen, quote, energies, which man cannot bribe nor change to suit a theory. The bubble shifts at the various stations throughout the line of survey, whether corroborating or denying preconceived opinions, must be accepted as conclusive. With perpendicular and horizontal uh, definitely fixed at starting point in our survey and in our argument concerning the evidences afforded in the line projected, we have factors which constitute an indispensable basis of, of reference. Once leveled, the direction of our line was fixed from which it was not possible to depart. The bolts which held together their brass facings on the adjusted right angle cross arms would not admit, oh, would admit of no change. The very principles of construction of the apparatus compelled to the maintenance of the rectiline from the beginning to the end. The line projected must terminate somewhere, either in space or in the water, according to the earth, would be found to be convex or concave. If the earth were convex, the line would extend into space, as before explained. As the line would proceed, 
the bubble in the spirit level would shift at each successive application more and more towards the south from the central division of the scale, while the plumb line hanging in the direction of the perpendicular or the Earth's radii at the various stations would hang towards the initial station. If concave, the conditions and positions of the levels would plumb, that would be reverse of those in a convex surface. If flat, they would be the same continually as the beginning of the line. By reference to cut four plate one, the relations of the plumb to an extension of the horizontal at the initial station may be clearly seen as regards to the convex, uh, the flat and concave theories. In conjunction with the tests and levels of the plumb, the observations of the Gulf horizon were made, as before explained. At the beginning of the line, the straight edges of the apparatus when adjustment were parallel with the horizon. On a convex arc, the straight edges and the horizon line would appear to converge forward to the north with increasing angle. As the line proceeded, if flat, the original parallel relations would be apparent through the line, and if concave, the apparent convergence would be toward the south, or in the direction of the movement of the apparatus. I mean, that makes total sense to me. I mean, what do you think about this? If the mercurial geodetic level indicating the angle of the divergence of airline and the horizontal at points of test for the space of 12 feet were one mile uh, at 0.042 inches, then two miles at 0.094 inches and two three-eighths of a mile at, one po at point 0.115 inches. See, then the horizon indicating the angle for space of 36 feet as accurately could be measured by the eye at a distance of 15 feet from the apparatus. That's one mile at 15 inches, two miles at 0.34 inches, and two and three-eighths miles at 0.51 inches. Now, if we take this all into account here, see, these readings were taken as a base of the mathematical calculations will be found to nearly conform to the relations of chord and radii over an arc of 25,000 miles circumference and are evidences of the angles increased about proper ratio as its surveyed line proceeded uh, or, excuse me, progressed from beginning to end. And basically what they're saying in this is that they built a giant wooden apparatus. Hopefully you're still listening to this. They built a giant wooden apparatus. It basically looked like, uh, I don't know, uh, half one side of a pier going out to sea. And they set it up a long ways along a beach. And they put a telescope at one side and they looked down it. Okay. And they said, okay, this uh, giant long wooden structure is long enough. We're looking down it. If it if we're looking down it, we're looking through a telescope, and we're using it like a giant crosshair. If we see the horizon above the length of this giant long length of wood, that means that the Earth actually curves up and in towards the sky, not down and out as if it was a sphere, and we live on the outside. Of course we do. But they believed, they took these... Basically, they improperly designed their experiment. They improperly designed their equipment. They improperly designed the, in the entire conception is, is ill-conceived. There are easier and better ways to prove what they were trying to prove. What they were proving was really correct and, and vice versa. But ultimately, they concocted an amazing little story and created a, um, a story that people would believe called the Cellular Cosmogony. And it is about 200 pages of that. Nowhere does it make any more or less sense. Um, and there are some things in there that uh, do. There are some things in there that are con uh, connected to reality, but very far and few in between. And most of them have to do nothing with um, anything that makes sense outside of this book. Uh, but in 2015, 
there was an amazing uh, work, really. I can't believe that someone actually went and did this. Uh, it's Lynn Milner was uh, the author's name. She wrote The Allure of Immortality, an American cult, a Florida swamp, and a renegade prophet. And I think you can actually go and look this up. Maybe this will be on like Amazon or something. It's by the University Press of Florida, so maybe it is hard to track down since it was printed in 2015. But I would suggest that you go and take some time if this interests you. And if the things, please go and look at my Twitter. I've actually posted like legible, understandable things on my Twitter about um, a recent visit to uh, the Correction State Park. Take a look there and see what you see. And if you find you enjoy what you see, and that this is the uh, most interesting cult slash commune slash um, organizational group you've ever seen, I suggest taking a look at the allure of immortality. Uh, it explains in normal English what I just read to you in total nonsense. I also suggest that you um, go out there and have a little fun today. Uh, read a book, read the newspaper, and uh, listen to something else besides me talking about curves and airlines and spirit levels. And uh, have a have a wonderful afternoon. And I'll be back with you on Wednesday. Thank you.
Let's go.